This is the Green Street News, your weekly environmental health update with Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts. Welcome back. On today's show, we're going to talk about bacteria, about how nature being out of balance is creating a dangerous, toxic situation for humans and their pets. It seems that our desire to build our houses at the edge of the water and have nice green lawns that stretch right down to the edge of the water is causing a shift in the natural balance of bacteria with what could be life-threatening results. That story and Patty with the Week's environmental health headlines all coming up. Stay with us. Okay, Patty, so what happened in the world of environmental health this week? Well, a whole lot is happening, but I have three good articles here to share with our audience. The first one is a blog from Substack.com, and the title is The Dangerous Chemical Bill Gates is Coating Your Organic Produce With. You can't even trust buying organic produce anymore, thanks to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Katy Perry, and Oprah. They're investors in a new company called Appeal, A-P-E-E-L, which makes a plant-based chemical that coats your produce with a protective layer you can't wash off, but it keeps the produce from turning brown or decomposing in a normal amount of time. This sounds like science fiction, really? Yeah, it's, this is, was the most terrifying of all the articles I okay. pulled for this week. Okay. Appeal says its coating chemical is made from purified mono and diglycerides, food ingredients that are found in a variety of food items that have become popular substitutes for trans fats. Mono and diglycerides are a byproduct of oil processing, including partially hydrogenated canola and soybean oils. So far, it sounds... You know, moderately, maybe okay. Still, we're trying to improve on nature, right? We're trying to outsmart nature. Yeah. Unfortunately, if you think by choosing organic, you're good to go, think again. On the company's website, they state, We have formulations that are OMRI listed for the growers and distributors of USDA certified organic produce. They claim their product helps reduce plastic, which might be true, but what else is it doing? If you're thinking that you'll just wash it off, you can't. In its FAQ, the company says, essentially, you can try but won't succeed. Quote, you could likely remove some of the peel with water and scrubbing, but it's unlikely that you'd be able to remove all of it without damaging the fruit or vegetable. A peel forms a barrier of edible material on the skin or peel, and it wouldn't maintain the fruit's natural freshness if it was easily removed. When asked if a peel is a chemical, Jenny Dew, the co-founder, states, quote, Well, everything is in fact a chemical. We're all part of star stuff, which are elements that surround us to form chemicals. Oh, really? Come on. You may be seeing the appeal sticker or label on your produce, but there are also other brands using this coating on their produce. You'll find appeal stickers on produce in places like Costco, Trader Joe's, Sprouts, Vons, Walmart, Whole Foods, and Kroger. Holy Caruso. So exactly how old is that apple in your fridge? You'll never know. As time goes on, produce loses nutritional value, but you won't be able to tell how fresh it is because of the appeal coating. 
Your avocado might look like it was picked yesterday from a nearby farm, but it could be months old. According to scientists, most produce loses up to 30% of its nutrients just three days after being harvested due to light oxygen and heat. So isn't the solution to eat your food, you know, in a reasonable amount of time and not store it in the refrigerator? Or is the solution to spray it with some chemical that is going to preserve it way beyond its natural life? Well, you know how I'm going to respond to that. Yeah, I, I mean, we eat out of our garden and local farmers markets. Yeah. I'm appalled, actually, by this. This is dealing with food waste. Oh, my goodness. So you know, we won't have any food waste now because we're coating all of our produce. I don't think most so of So that our... it doesn't degrade yeah. properly. I don't what think, is this? I don't think most of our food waste is coming from people throwing out an apple that's gotten too old. I think our food waste is coming, A, from people who don't eat all the food they have, and B, things that aren't perfect. Right? And restaurants, of course. There's Restaur a lot of food waste coming yeah. off restaurants. Oh, boy. Okay, what else you got? Okay, well, this is my most important one. And this is published by ProPublica, written by Peter Elkind. And ah. the title is, The FCC is Supposed to Protect the Environment. It doesn't. Peter Elkind, back on the beat here. Back He's on the beat. He's such a great reporter. Yeah. All right. In a mountainous forest in southwest Puerto Rico, workers cleared a patch to make room for a 120-foot cell phone tower intended for use by AT&T and T-Mobile. The site, as the tower company later acknowledged, destroyed the nesting habitat of the Puerto Rican nightjar, a tiny endangered songbird. Fewer than 2,000 are believed to be alive today. In the northwestern New Mexico desert, a company called Sacred Wind Communications, promising to bring broadband to remote Navajo communities, planted a cell tower near the legally protected Pictured Cliffs archaeological site, which contains thousands of centuries-old tribal rock carvings. And in Silicon Valley, a space startup pursued plans to equip thousands of satellites to use mercury fuel in orbit, even as an Air Force official at one of the possible launch sites voiced extreme concern that the toxic element could rain back down on Earth. Holy cow. You may be surprised to learn that these potential harms fall under the jurisdiction of the Federal Communications Commission. Few people think of the SCC as an environmental cop. It's known for regulating television and radio and overseeing the deployment of communications technology. But the agency also has a broad mandate to ensure that technology doesn't damage the environment. The task includes everything from protecting wildlife and human health to preserving historic sites and even preventing aesthetic blight. This role is particularly critical now, as the FCC presides over a nationwide build-out for 5G service, which will require 800,000 new small-cell transmitters, those perched on street poles and rooftops near schools, apartments, and homes. But even with this massive effort underway, the FCC has refused to revise its radiation exposure limits, which date back to the era of flip phones. In addition, the agency has cut back on the environmental reviews that it requires while also restricting local government's control over wireless sites. And as the satellite fuel example reflects, the FCC's ambit extends even into space. The agency is licensing thousands of commercial satellites at a moment when the profusion of objects circling the planet is raising concerns about collisions in space, impediments to astronomy, pollution, and debris falling back to Earth. 
they have no authority to license things in space. Can I just say this is the FCC and nobody's ever given them that authority. They just kind of took it on and said, we're going to do this in violation of international treaties and all kinds of things. <sighs> to call the FCC's environmental approach hands off would be an understatement. The agency operates on the honor system, delegating much of its responsibility to the industries that it regulates. It allows companies to decide for themselves whether their projects require environmental study. And if the companies break the rules, they're expected to report their own transgression. Few <laughs> do. Yeah. There's a surprise. The FCC's inaction can have dire consequences. For years, the agency refused to take action even as millions of birds died by flying into communications towers. Only after a federal appeals court castigated the agency for its apparent misunderstanding of its environmental obligations did the FCC take steps that addressed some, but not all, of the problem. A misunderstanding, a misunderstanding. of their obligations. Mm -hmm. I see. They just didn't understand it. That An was apparent the misunderstanding. <laughs> In most instances, the scale of damages is relatively small. A half acre of demolished habitat, a mound of damaged Native American artifacts, an ugly tower looming over the National Scenic Trail. But the FCC authorizes thousands of projects each year, and the effects add up. These days, the FCC's laissez-faire approach is sparking resistance. Hundreds of conflicts have erupted across the country, triggered by citizens fearing risks to their health from wireless radiation, harm to their property values, damage to the environment, and the destruction of treasured views. Fights are raging from rural Puerto Rico, where protesters have been arrested for blocking roads used by cell tower construction crews, to New York City, where a dozen community boards protested the appearance of visually jarring three-story 5G poles on neighborhood sidewalks. In New York, state officials got involved, and then a local congressman. Finally, in late April, the furor grew intense enough that the FCC was forced to act. It belatedly ordered a company to halt construction after more than 100 poles had already been built and began the type of reviews that are supposed to be completed before breaking ground. Yeah. In 2014, the FCC hired its first full-time environmental lawyer, Erica Rosenberg. Her mission was an afterthought at the agency. She told ProPublica, everyone was set on deployment. These environmental laws just got in the way. It was just the culture of the place, she said. Nobody cared. Wow. Isn't that some indictment of a federal yeah. agency with a mandate yeah. to protect the yeah. environment? And, and, and Rosenberg then, quit in frustration yeah, in 2021. Yeah. 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 Wow. You know, so there's your FCC. Yeah. Uh-huh. Hard the at work. FCC who works for the telecommunications industry. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. Okay. What else? Here we are, local, another New York State catastrophe at hand here. In the making? In the making. Um, Peter Matthias wrote this from the Water Frontline blog, and it is entitled, Hochul administration is projecting major expansion of sewage sludge spreading as fertilizer on farmland. The Hochul administration's new plan to recycle 85% of the state's entire solid waste stream by 2050 relies on spreading more, much more, municipal sewage sludge on fields as a crop fertilizer. I thought we were through. I thought we had this on the on the show a few weeks ago. We talked about Maine yeah, banning yeah, yeah. this. Oh, absolutely. And we're planning to do more in New York State. Oh yeah, we're just we're ignoring everything that's happening in the scientific world, and we're ignoring what other states are doing, which is basically banning it. Yeah. And we're going full speed ahead on using more of it. Wow. 
This would abruptly reverse a decade-long trend away from sludge spreading in New York as concerns about pollutants in sludge have been growing nationwide. Maine banned the practice last year after it identified 56 farms contaminated with PFAS, which are forever chemicals. But the draft 2023 New York State Solid Waste Management Plan proposes to boost the rate of recycling, which is field spreading, of all sewage sludge it generates from 22% in 2018 to 57% in 2050. Tracy Frisch, chair of the Clean Air Action Network of Glens Falls, says it's insane. We really need to do something quickly on this. The State Department of Environmental Conservation is accepting public comments on its draft waste plan through May 15th. But the DEC sidesteps the other major factor behind the trend, public concern about the pollutants in sludge that bioaccumulate in crops, animals, and humans. PFAS compounds are carcinogenic in a few parts per trillion, and heavy metals and other potent pollutants are also present in the sludge. So doesn't the governor understand and the DEC understand that this is an irreversible thing that you're doing? Once you Right, once because you PFAS put, is a forever chemical. That's right. right. And, it, and it moves through the food chain, without question. The DEC's plan doesn't entertain the possibility that new environmental enforcement mandates might limit the state's ability to dramatically boost sludge spreading in the coming decades. The recycling of biosolids through land application and other means can be a source of PFAS in the environment, which the plan acknowledges. But the DEC has not announced plans to systematically test sludge for PFAS. Rather, it said it was waiting for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to set guidelines or enforceable limits for PFAS in field spread sludge. Really, I mean, this is going to be years before the EPA sets their limits. And in the meantime, we've spread these forever chemicals all over New York State's beautiful farmland. Well, New York State is a major agricultural state, which sure. most people don't know living downstate here. Oh, but upstate New York, you know, we've got vineyards, we've got, you know, massive spreads of agricultural land. Sure. Not to mention orchards. I was going to say apples from upstate. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Cyanobacteria have been around for a long time, three and a half billion years to be exact. They live in the water and manufacture their own food. You may know them as blue-green algae. These bacteria are tiny, usually just one cell you can't see with the naked eye, but sometimes they bloom into large colonies that you can see from space and they produce toxins that can be dangerous for humans and other animals. Some types of the toxins can damage the liver, others affect the central nervous system and produce toxic alkaloids that affect the kidneys and gastrointestinal tract. And they may be a trigger for amniotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Back in about 2008, I had some students helping me for a summer project and we tried to map out all our ALS patients, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis patients. And we found a cluster around a lake not far from the medical school, actually, in Enfield, New Hampshire, called Lake Muscoma. 
And we found an increased incidence of ALS there. It was about 25 to 40 times higher than what one would expect in the general population. That's Dr. Elijah Stammel, a neurologist at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and one of the country's leading experts on the blue-green algae bacteria and its effects on human health. So we didn't really know why there was a clustering of ALS patients around that water body, but we started to look at it pretty carefully. And we talked to a limnologist, a freshwater lake expert from University of New Hampshire named James Haney. And he pointed out that that particular lake had had a history of cyanobacterial blooms and some of the uh, toxins that cyanobacteria make are neurotoxic. Fortunately, nature has created a balancing mechanism that has kept blue-green algae bacteria in relative check for millions of years. But when the weather gets particularly hot, the algae can bloom quickly, mostly in freshwater lakes and ponds, but also in saltwater. They're fed by excess nutrients in the water. Nitrogen runoff from factory farms and other forms of agriculture is the source of a lot of these excess nutrients. Lake Champlain in Vermont has a terrible problem with cyanobacterial blooms or algal blooms as they're called. And it's directly related to the amount of nutrients put into the lake. And that's not just farmers, it's not just agriculture, it's um, blacktop where you don't get good runoff, you don't have buffers and bad sewage systems. On Lake Muscoma back in the 1950s and 60s, most of the people that lived on that lake didn't have a septic system. They just flushed right into the, into the lake. So farms and sewage are big contributors, but there's another source. Many people who live near lakes and ponds want lush green lawns going right down to the water's edge. And that usually means a lot of fertilizer. And of course, some of that fertilizer inevitably ends up in the lake or pond. They put them on their lawns and want to have a, a green lawn and then they have to cut it every week and there's no buffer so that everything runs into the into the water. And then with global warming, you know, that's that's just increasing the temperature of the water, which is adding more fuel to the fire. So blue-green algae is becoming more common. But is the cyanobacteria really causing the ALS? Can we draw a straight line between exposure and the onset of disease? Not yet, says Professor Stommel, but we're getting closer. Since that early publication in 2009 about the small lake in New Hampshire, we've certainly looked more broadly at, uh, at toxins, but we've also tried to map out all the ALS patients we've been able to find with the help of the University of Vermont and by scouring death certificates, um, death records, and um, trying to start some registries, actually. And you know, being proactive and seeing more and more ALS patients. So we've found clusters of ALS around other water bodies. Um, and we've had a colleague named Nate Torbeck, who is a remote sensing expert. And he uses satellite imagery. And he looked at water quality that was conducive to cyanobacteria with these satellites. And we were able to show a statistical modeling that was statistically significant between where ALS patients are and where these water bodies are of poor water quality. This is not good news for many of America's most popular tourist destinations. 
People love to fish, swim, and sail on lakes from Maine to Florida, from Michigan to Missouri, and out to the beautiful lakes in California and the Northwest. Lakes are critical to the economic vitality of thousands of small towns and villages, not to mention the companies across the country that manufacture boats, water skis, and swimming gear. So, while cyanobacteria and rising nutrient level is a growing problem across the country, not everyone wants to hear about it. You know, I have dealt with the public health departments in Vermont and New Hampshire, and my experience is that they're as worried about tourism as they are about anything else, um, money. And I don't blame them for that, because if you scare people and they don't want to come spend a month on Lake Champlain in the summertime, and the person who owns that house can't rent it out, and uh, they're losing money. But on the other hand, if you have a big bloom right on the shore, and it smells bad, and the water's all green, nobody's going to want to come rent that place either. So it's important to get a handle on this uh, sooner than later. And um, it's, it seems to be getting worse. There's many, many lakes in northern New England here that are contaminated. I heard about a lake on Nantucket, that um, small sort of uh, um, brackish pond right near the ocean. And of course, all the billionaires move there and build these monster houses. And they surrounded this nice uh, pond with these big McMansions and um, lawns and septic systems. And you have very porous, very porous uh, ground there in Nantucket. It's all sand, so it just leaches right into the pond. And now they're all they're all congregated around this this large uh, poisonous pond. Um, so it's it's kind of, uh, kind of very sad, really. There are a lot of toxins in this world that can trigger disease. There are natural toxins like the cyanobacteria that causes blue-green algae, but there are also man-made toxins which are unfortunately increasing in prevalence in our world. Teasing out which toxic exposures cause which disease has been a challenge for researchers for years. Some cancers, there's, there's a theory that's called the Dole-Armitage theory, which was looked at back in the 1950s by two oncologists. Um, they looked at gastrointestinal cancers and they did a plot, a logometric plot of log of age of onset versus the log of incidence of, of disease. They showed a slope of about, of about five, a logometric slope of about five. Um, and that slope suggests that you need about six hits over your lifetime to develop these GI cancers. So the first hit may be that you have some genetic predisposition. And then on top of that, maybe you eat too much fat or you drink too much alcohol or you smoke or you chew tobacco or you eat certain foods that may be carcinogenic. So, but, but over time you get six hits and then you eventually get the disease. And there have been researchers in Europe that have looked at that same logometric curve in large populations of ALS patients. And it looks like exactly the same curve can be basically superimposed on these old graphs from the 1950s. And so what would be the risk factors for ALS could include things like cyanotoxins, maybe, maybe these hydrazines that come from um, the plant of the cycad plant or from mushrooms of certain species. Could it come from nanoparticles from air pollution? Um, certainly those are neurotoxic. There's no question about that. 
Air pollution and nanoparticles may be something else. And then there are all these persistent organic pollutants like pesticides, dioxins, PAHs, all these things that don't go away. And there are a lot of these pesticides that don't go away and things that are in electronics. So those are another one. And then, you, of course, things like heavy metals. So if you eat too much swordfish or too much tuna fish, you might be exposed to methyl mercury. Um, if you're exposed to lead by eating paint inadvertently or on purpose, or a house painter or a contractor who are exposed to high levels of lead, or you're making fishing weights in your basement or making uh, shooting guns actually can do it. As we mentioned at the top of the show, blue-green algae can cause lots of different health problems for people, not just ALS. But for dogs, livestock, and other animals, it can mean death within minutes or hours of swallowing the toxins from the blue-green algae blooms. I do think that there should be buffers around lakes. I think there should be, I think that it should be taken seriously that these water bodies that have blooms in them are potentially very toxic. We didn't talk about some of the other toxins in detail, but just to give you an example, anatoxin AS is a organophosphate. It's an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. So it works like some pesticides, the organophosphate pesticides. The S at the end stands for salivation because it increases the acetylcholine that your saliva nerve endings hypersalivate. Um, the anatoxin AS is 2000 times more potent than the average organophosphate that's put on farm fields. And it will kill your dog in a few minutes if they drink the water, if there's enough anatoxin there. Blue-green algae also grow in salt water. We've looked at the Chesapeake Bay where we found high levels of BMAA in crab. Um, and we found a cluster of people who were eating the crab on one street and came down with ALS along the coast of, uh, of Maine. And um, where I grew up on Cape Cod, the town reservoir has blooms every year. Elijah Stommel continues to study the possible link between cyanobacteria and ALS, but it's hard to get the live algae to study because it's so toxic. I tried to get some of the anatoxin AS because I wanted to try it out on some cell cultures, and um, I couldn't get it anywhere because it's so toxic, you can't buy it. There was a place in China that was selling it, but uh, I think they were prohibited from selling it here anymore. So the research goes on. Like most research of this kind, answers are not easy to come by. And the true answer to the cause of ALS is probably a combination of many factors. One person's ALS is probably totally different than another person's ALS, although phenotypically they look the same. Um, what goes wrong in one person's cells are totally different than what goes wrong in another person's cells. And that may have to do with what you're exposed to, but also your genetics. So. There are over two dozen genes that have been discovered that um, will predispose you to ALS, some of which are autosomal dominant and will uh, run in families. There's a family in Northern Vermont and about 50% of that family develop ALS. And some of them develop it at the age of 20. Others in that family never develop it, even though they, they're carriers. So that also suggests that either there's some other genetic aspect that protects them or that 
the 20-year-old is exposed to something that the 80-year-old is not exposed to. Dr. Elijah Stammel, always searching for answers to these complex scientific riddles. Dr. Stammel is a neurologist at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and one of the country's leading experts on blue-green algae and its effects on human health, including ALS. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. If you enjoyed today's program, you can always hear it again at our website, greenstreetnews.org, where you can also learn more about us and our various programs and give us feedback on the show. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Elijah Stammel, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Lyman, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Patricia Bridges. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening. <laughs>